and welcome to Overinvested, a podcast about pop culture obsessions. I'm Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and here is this week's co-host, Stefan Allen. Hello. So this week we watched the sci-fi comedy film Poor Things, directed by Yorgos Lanthimos and written by Tony McNamara. Adapted from a novel by Alistair Gray, it stars Emma Stone as a woman whose consciousness is born through a Frankenstein-like experiment. Starting out with the mind of a child and the body of an adult woman, she embarks on a series of misadventures and sexual escapades, taking place in a heavily stylized Victorian setting. Uh, so we are recording this with immense timeliness because while it has been out in the US for like a month and a half, the Oscar nominations were just announced today and this film got a whopping 11 nominations, including Best Picture and Best Actress and all of the technical categories. And um, Stefan, I think between the two of us, we're sort of averaging a between two and three star review of this film. <laughs> yeah, we definitely think this is a five star film if you add our yes. scores. <laughs> <laughs> High volume of gripes. We're not alone in this. This is definitely one of the more divisive films this year. And I feel like in the awards circuit, it has now overtaken Saltburn, which is um, now perceived as laughable enough to not be taken very seriously. And this is now one of the key bad films which is getting a lot of a lot of awards <laughs> attention and praise obviously many people do love this film and um, sometimes opinions differ so listeners i hope you'll stick around and uh, hear what we what we have to say there are many elements of this film which are actually very impressive to me and i have really enjoyed yorgos lanthimos's previous films as well that i've seen um he is one of our kind of most successful indie directors at the moment his last movie was the favorite um, which obviously also starred Emma Stone, the lesbian, historical, satirical black comedy. He does a lot of kind of black comedy stuff. And before that, he did The Killing of the Sacred Deer and The Lobster. So alongside his 2009 film Dogtooth, which is um, very intense and I haven't seen, those are kind of his best known films. And I, I really enjoy his vibe. This one was written by the same screenwriter as The Favourite, but for many and varied reasons did not gel with it. I think this film was quite stupid, <laughs> although very well made in a lot of respects. Yeah, the thing is, because it's so strange in a lot of ways, and Yorgos Lanthimos's work is usually very strange, it's quite fun to dislike it, because you can be really witty and funny about it, and I want to avoid falling into that trap, because there is a lot I admire about this film. I do think it looks great like it looks really specific and i did gel with its look to a certain extent there are things about the design that i didn't like but on the whole i was like yes i want films to look like this i want films to have really strong and unusual visual styles the the costumes are obviously great i'm sure y you know y you'll be able to talk more intelligently about them but i was like i like all these clothes <laughs> so you know there's loads and loads to admire but i think there's there's a real mismatch of sort of tone and content in it and it's a shame because there are times in this film where I was like, oh, actually, I like it now. <laughs> and every so often there'd be a new sequence that was like, oh, no. A little balloon would rise cheerfully up in the middle of the screen saying, feminism, question mark, and Ugh. then pop. <laughs> <laughs> but before we get into that, I will give a little introduction to author Alistair Gray, who is the foundation stone, obviously, of this I've not actually read this particular novel, although Morgan has and was giving me the Clifton notes the other day, but I am very familiar with Alistair Gray because he is a Glasgow icon. Glasgow, of course, being my hometown in Scotland. He's one of the sort of Scottish literary greats, but he's not particularly well known internationally. But he was a late 20th century author and he wrote a lot of quite ambitious literary genre work sort of in the sci-fi fantasy sphere but not sort of spaceships and elves you know a lot weirder than that his most famous novel is um, Lanark which I read as a teenager which kind of combines war stuff with this sort of surreal dreamland and like a disease that gives you dragon skin it's all there's a lot going on in his work he was also a very acclaimed visual artist and there's all these murals by him all over Glasgow so Basically, that is to say he is a Glasgow institution and a lot of the discourse around this film in Scotland specifically has been a about the fact that it removes itself from the Glaswegian setting. So it's set in this, you know, heavily fictionalised, generic sort of 
Victorian London, and then it moves to other locations in Europe and North Africa as the main character starts travelling around the world. And of course, Victorian London is just this sort of catch-all setting for so many things. It's the generic steampunk setting, although this is not a steampunk movie. And a lot of people who are invested in Alistair Gray's work are quite frustrated or in fact offended by the fact that Yorgos Lanthimos chose to remove the Glasmegian setting that like the book's rooted in. I don't really have a horse in that race. I'm kind of like, you're allowed to make that sort of decision. I don't really see Glasgow as like an underrepresented minority, so <laughs> I can't really view it from that angle. But I was quite interested to hear from Morgan just like to what extent the book is very heavily Glasmegian. And that is one of the elements that it makes it sound like the adaptation has kind of made it less interesting as a concept. The yeah. original yeah, the original novel is got a lot of sort of documents in it, so it's kind of told through letters and diaries and newspaper stuff. It's got like a lot more ambiguous narratorship going on. And we'll talk about the politics of the film later, but it sounds like, unsurprisingly, the book's political ideas are a lot more sophisticated than what's on display here. It feels to me just like a missed opportunity. The film really fights hard to have an incredibly specific and distinctive visual style. Why not use Glasgow? Because you're right, it may not be as underrepresented as other places in the world, but it is significantly less well-covered than London. London feels like quite a bland setting in a lot of ways. Obviously, London is extremely varied. There's lots of ways of shooting London. But why make it London? You know, you're making it look so strange and different anyway. It's not like you watch this film and think, oh, what, what a, an authentic representation yeah, I mean, of no London. no place in this is real. <laughs> this film has captions when we go to different places to tell us what place we're in. You could simply swap the word London for Glasgow in this film, and I don't think it would matter that much. Yeah, and like kind of do things that experiment with the exteriors of the locations that are mentioned in the novel, because there's lots of like specific addresses and stuff, apparently. Also, one of the things that came up in the discourse, there is an article in The Guardian that we will link to, which is about how you know, someone who's very mad at Yorgos Lanthimos for removing Glasgow. But it was also talking about how there's no Scottish actors in it, which like, once again, I'm sort of like, it's not like Scottish actors aren't getting work out there. So I'm sort of six of one and half a dozen of the other there. But I did find it kind of weird that they give the Frankenstein creator character, who is effectively the father of the protagonist, Bella Baxter. This character is played by Willem Dafoe, who puts on a West of Scotland accent while everyone else is English or whatever. And I was just like, so you've decided to keep that element? You know, shrug. <laughs> There's a quote from Lanthimos, but he said it would have been totally disingenuous of him to produce a cinematic work about Scotland. I mean, he made the favourite. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's, it's like, why why even say something so defensive as that? Why not just be like, I felt like not doing it in Scotland, 100%. which is an acceptable excuse. Yeah, that's it. Take the loss. Like, it feels really strange to be that defensive. What do you mean totally disingenuous? Like, Because the favourite is very English and he is, yeah. of course, Greek. And it's like, I don't think there's any controversial power differential in all this, you know? Um, the kind of final part of this intro would, of course, be Emma Stone, our star, who is, of course, mm. fantastic. Like any right-thinking person, I love Emma Stone. I love the evolution of her career. She's so talented and she's starting to pick really fun and bold roles in a way that I find very exciting. She's always been hilarious. She's an amazing comedy actress. And in the past few years, she's really gone on quite an experimental kick. Obviously, she did star in the Disney movie Cruella, but you gotta pay the bills somehow. Um, <laughs> but of course, you know, this is her second Yorgos Lanthimos movie and she's probably going to do another next. And then at the same time, she's just made this TV show called The Curse. And it's a Nathan Fielder show. I've not watched it, but all the coverage of this is just like... This show is really fucking weird and it's kind of a satirical experimental thriller about reality TV starring her and Nathan Fielder. So she's doing a lot of out there stuff in a way that I really respect. And she also produced this movie. She was like instrumental in crafting the main character. So while this episode is going to be leaning heavily on the this movie is not remotely feminist in the way that people think it is line, I'm not going to be like, poor Emma Stone. It's like, obviously she thinks this film is good. And um, I, the idiot watching with popcorn in the cinema, don't agree <laughs> with her. But she's laughing all the way to the Oscars. Yeah. I like Emma Stone very, very much. I think she's excellent. 
I would prefer to watch her in other movies <laughs> than this. <laughs> there, the thing is, there are times where she's very good in this. Yeah, yeah, there is. Problem with having a character as grotesque as that of Bella Baxter is even very good actors can be tempted to be too unrestrained in how indulgent their wild performances can be. And there's definitely times here, certainly the first probably half hour of yeah, the film. Yeah, there is a lot of cloning happening in the first half because she starts off the film as basically a toddler in an adult body. Yeah, which I did not know when I went to see this film. I didn't know anything about this film. I went in cold. Obviously, I knew I knew the director. I knew the cast. I knew I had not seen a trailer. I didn't know the subject matter. So I like that experience from films. I like going in going, I don't know anything. But the risk is you then watch a film where you spend 15 minutes going, why is this a film making fun of a brain-damaged woman? (laughs) Is that the whole thing? Because not knowing that she's not brain-damaged, that you know, some sort of fantasy Frankenstein thing is happening, makes it a very uncomfortable watch at first. And the other thing I didn't know about this film was its running time. So... When I started getting itchy feet two hours in, I was not, you know, this I still had another 20 minutes to go. too long. I think even yeah. people who like it think that it's too long. And there's there is no real good reason for it to be two hours and 20 minutes. And it also suffers from the same problem as Saltburn, which is like you think it's going to end and then it just like keeps not ending. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there were several points where I thought it was coming to the end. And yeah, the, the pacing is strange. And I think... Pacing is very hard to get right in a film that goes over the two-hour mark. You know, you sort of know where you stand with a two-hour film, because if 90 minutes into a film, you physically know you have not been there for a full film's worth of film yet. Whereas once you're over the two-hour mark, it's like, uh, I I have no idea when this will end now. It could end in two minutes, it could end in half an hour. Yeah, I mean... I suspect it's kind of a symptom of self-indulgence and when a filmmaker has less restrictions on them, which is something Yorgos Lanthimos has spoken about openly. And it's a real gamble, right? Because like when a director I love has a really big hit, which in his case would be the favourite, and then gets a lot of creative freedom, it's very exciting. But, you know, it can go one of two ways. And this was kind of his passion project for a long time. He got the rights to the book when Alistair Gray was still alive in the late 2000s. So he's wanted to make it for a long time. And his previous few films are in a lot of ways darker, but also more tense and kind of toward the thriller angle. Whereas this is a lot goofier in a lot of ways. And as we were alluding to earlier, it has this very specific aesthetic that is, when you texted me, you were sort of like, oh, it's like Tim Burton. It reminded me of Terry Gilliam, which is getting a lot of comparisons to, and also the French director, Jean-Pierre Jeunet, who was working in the kind of 90s and 2000s and made things like City of Lost Children. So it's like, there's these gorgeous practical sets and very surreal landscapes and that sort of thing which you can only do when you've got more of a budget and that's really exciting but then the concept of this film is it just thinks it's a lot more thoughtful and smart than it actually is because he is telling this story about this girl woman which is a very common theme in media except usually in a less literal way because you know there's there's so many stories which is like wouldn't it be intriguing if there was someone who you could kind of sexualize because it's an adult woman but she's really got no memory or whatever and the concept of this story and in the original novel as far as I can tell is kind of satirizing that and using it to make feminist commentary about the way that men view women and try to control their lives. So this character has no understanding of society and is raised in complete seclusion by her father slash creator, who is played by Willem Dafoe. And he has all these kind of scars in his face. He has been experimented on by his own father. So he's experienced a similar kind of mutilation, but he's given him this quite warped idea of what's acceptable. And because it's this kind of quasi-Victorian setting, he and all the men around him don't really see any problem in the way that they are controlling Bella Baxter's life. And a lot of the kind of ideas it's trying to put forth, I'm like, yeah, you're right. This is saying something about the way that men try to control women's lives and the way that women are sexualized. And then when the guy who is kind of her love interest shows up in the first third of the film, he's this oversexed buffoon played by Mark Ruffalo. Absolutely hilarious performance. And the gist of his role is that 
he is wildly attracted to her because she has got the brain of a baby, doesn't understand anything, but is really horny and attractive. So he's like, this is the perfect woman. And it's like, that kind of is the way <laughs> that like a lot of guys behave. And it is the basic philosophy of why a lot of people are attracted to 18-year-old girls. Because you're like, well, technically she's an adult. It's like when a 35-year-old's dating an 18-year-old. And we all understand the dynamic there, which is like, yeah, you'll break up with her when she reaches her mid-twenties and has started reading more books and has more experience of the world, which is precisely the arc that happens in this movie. But the way that it's depicted and the way that her evolution is depicted is like so heavily focused on sexuality that it's like, why have you chosen to focus on just this in the way that you've done that instead of the way the book appears to set it out, which has got a lot more kind of discussion about 19th century politics and social movements and that sort of thing. Yeah, it's really uneven, this film, I think. You know, there are times where I think it nails what it's going for. Mark Ruffalo's character... I think he outstays his welcome a bit, that character, actually. I, yeah, I, I thought that too, because like in the first section of when he was there, I was like, this is another banger of a performance from Mark Ruffalo, but crucially, a type of performance I don't think we see from him very much. Yeah. Because it's really over the top and ridiculous, and he's so funny. But it's also, I would say, a really good example of where the film's themes are very cohesive. So, you know, he is an exploitative hedonist who sees an opportunity in Bella and just, you know, can't help himself. Just, uh, I must have her. Yeah. So essentially, for those who haven't seen the film, he meets her when she is still living in her father's house and she's had this very restrictive upbringing where he is not letting her go out. And she's reached the point in her maturity where she's kind of now got an older child brain. Although the script makes her speak in sort of weird stilted baby talk for most of the film. It has a very annoying style of dialogue that I was not in favour of. But she has got to the point where she is understanding that there's a wider world out there. She wants to explore. She wants more independence. And her father does give her tacit permission. And her way of rebelling and exploring is to attach herself to Mark Ruffalo's character. Because even though she knows he's probably quite useless, he is offering to take her around the world on this trip. So she goes with him. And can we talk spoilers? Are we assuming people listening have seen this? Yeah, I think we can talk spoilers. Okay. I mean, I'm not spoiling the very end, but this is kind of how Mark Ruffalo's character develops, is initially, you know, he's this hedonist who goes, no, you know, you should be allowed whatever you want from the world. You know, whatever you want to enjoy, you should enjoy it. And No strings. Yeah. And that is extremely appealing to Bella. But as Bella becomes more independent and as she grows less interested in sex with Mark Ruffalo, or at least less interested in exclusive monogamous sex with Mark Ruffalo, (laughs) which is the name of my Tumblr, you know, he becomes more possessive. And so it turns out that, as is so often the case, his promise of a free life with no strings is a lie. He is every bit as controlling, just as likely to treat her as property as anyone else is. It's just that he has taken her outside of the house to a space where it's much harder to contain and control her. And then we see him trying to work out how he can continue to control. And so, you know, there's this sort of power struggle. And I think it's quite effective. That character is, you know, a really clear depiction of the hypocrisy that this film tries to analyse. But I think elsewhere in the film, this exploration because i guess the big thing this film is doing is it's looking at the link between sex and innocence which a victorian might think are two poles apart you know you are either innocent or you are sexualized and this film is like no that's not true at all the innocent bella is highly sexualized she has to be taught to suppress her sexual desire because it's not socially acceptable to masturbate at the dinner table but There's other places where, like, I feel like the film isn't deconstructing it. Like, ah, what's the the student's name? Max McCandles, who is... Max McCandles. This guy who becomes the personal assistant to Dr. Baxter, who is Bella's father slash creator. And he's this sort of sweet, naive young medical student played by Rami Youssef, who 
who falls in love with her. I mean, it's like the, the movie doesn't take this seriously, obviously, because it's like absurd for someone to fall in love with her. But he is hired to take notes on her throughout the day to see how fast she's developing. And he's enraptured by her because he's like, oh, you know, sweet and innocent. And it's just like, at this point in the story, you're like, that's still gross, but there's like a sort of harmlessness to his grossness. So you're kind of seeing the true predator, which is Mark Ruffalo's character, and then Max McCandles, who's this like goofball, but he's still falling in love with like a three-year-old. So yeah, and, and that's <laughs> like... it. And I and I love Rami Youssef, by the way. I do. I I really like. Like I always enjoy seeing him in the film, but the character feels much less rich. You know where the film is willing to go very hard on Mark Ruffalo. You know his character does not come out of this film lightly, but Rami Youssef's character is just like. No, he's just a, you know, he's just a nice little guy. <laughs> and like no, you know, his his innocence or or you know, his his apparent innocence is also at odds with his desire to exploit Bella. And it, and it the film feels very very forgiving. Yeah. Of... And I mean, this is one of the main departures from the book because in the book, one of the key elements of the unreliable narratorship is that there's extracts of the autobiography of the husband character, which is meant to be kind of misreporting Bella's life and identity. And there's this sort of push-pull between Bella's truth and the truth that's imposed upon her by the documents written by men, as I have heard secondhand from Morgan. <laughs> I'd love to know what Morgan makes of it. I'm certain she would hate it. <laughs> yeah, me too. That's why I want. <laughs> There's a certain type of Morgan negativity that I just want yes. to laser We can target. check in in a few months if she's decided to watch it on streaming. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, that is really interesting. Definitely did make me want to read the book, this. And so people who are worried that this film, you know, is going to erase the book and Glasgow in general. I don't know, maybe, but this definitely made me want to read the source material. That... People always read books when they're made into adaptations. You yeah. know, it always happens. Yeah. Oh, let's also talk about Willem Dafoe's character. You know, his relationship to sex and... I can't decide if I like this or not, but so he plays the sort of father figure to Bella, the kind of Dr. Frankenstein who has created her um you know he's a sort of victorian scientist who experiments and creates chimerian monstrosities the house is full of animals that are a combination of two yeah. other animals and he also had this really abusive father who did all these experiments on him so you know he he like castrated him and fucked around with his stomach acid so he has to use this fantastical contraption that makes him belch out these floating bubbles and obviously he has all this facial scarring. So he has this really warped idea of what's acceptable in the name of scientific exploration. And the way he's kind of portrayed is that he has more of a natural paternal instinct. So he accidentally develops an affection and love for Bella, even though he views her as a science experiment. And when she leaves, he makes another girl through a similar method and is like trying to keep her more arm's length. Yeah. Again, there's elements of this I like a lot. And then there's elements. So one scene that I think is effective, it's horrible. I'm about to describe a horrible scene, but I think it's, it belongs in this film. It does what it's meant to, which is the student asks him basically says, oh, I sort of assumed your relationship with Bella was sexual. And Defoe's character says, it can't be because I was castrated. But he makes it really clear that if he hadn't been castrated, then yes, it would be sexual. But also he kind of is like, well, that would just be the natural way of things. Because they're both like, it would make sense for you to build yourself a mistress from like a baby brain. Yeah. So, you know, vile, but absolutely that's where this film is at its best, I think, is just the absolutely horrifying matter-of-fact way in which men talk about just incredibly appalling sexual politics. But that, again, really fades away. There's We don't really see that side of Defoe's character in the second half of the film, where he becomes a much more shallow, tormented guy, complicated within the logic of the story. In terms of his role in the film, it feels like he's almost redeemed... I don't know. I want to give the director more credit than that. These characters are not supposed to be like, you know, it's it's not like this isn't a, a simple story where we are meant to know who the good guys are. We can't really discuss this yet because it will have to be toward the end of the podcast. But I think it has like a very conventional ending. 
And I think there is a lot of incoherence and self-contradiction in just the film's overall philosophies, right? Like the, the thing that I wrote in the letterbox was like five stars for design and gowns and then one star for thoughts and ideas, you know? <laughs> and that kind of counts for all of the stuff that you're experiencing like in the moment, right? Because like there's so many bold performances in addition to all of the visual stuff that's going on. We haven't even mentioned the cinematography in this, which is like fucking bonkers, quite frankly. Mm. Um, <laughs> the cinematography is by Robbie Ryan, who works with a lot of like big impressive indie directors he also did the favorite and like i would say that there is too much cinematography happening in this film in addition to all of the kind of surreal scenery there's like loads of fisheye lens stuff going on there's a transition from black and white to color and even as someone who loves a lot of gimmicky camera effects i'm just like what is the purpose of this right because like when you do a lot of distorted lens stuff it's like well we're in this kind of alice in wonderland situation like sure but they also keep doing this thing where it's like you get the super fisheye lens where it's kind of like you're watching something from through a surveillance keyhole in a wall. And I'm like, what is this meant to be signifying to me? Am I meant to feel like I'm surveilling her? Because there's not actually a person at the end of that camera. And it just, you know. Have you seen the art of Alistair Gray? Yeah, yeah. All over Glasgow. So, oh, yeah, of course. Because that was my assumption is that it's trying to evoke that sort of strange sort of wibbly-wobbly way that his street scenes can be. I mean, possibly, but it doesn't function in a meaningful way in the film, I don't think. That Yeah, that is fair. But in terms of like the way it's discussed and the way it received Oscar recognition, it makes sense because, as we often discuss in this podcast, the things that get nominated are the stuff that's very noticeable. And in the case of this film... The cinematography and the incredibly grating music are both very, very <laughs> noticeable. Ah, <laughs> uh, we disagree on the music, I think, because I, yeah. I loved it. <laughs> Composed by a man with an incredibly fake-sounding Star Wars name, Jerskin Fendrix. Oh, wow. That's a great note. That said, though, there's a sting of music, and I, I, I find it hard to explain this, where it's sort of weirdly distorted and, it, you know, it feels kind of discordant and warped. I don't like that sting because I think any time the film starts leaning too heavily into we are watching our protagonist's brain is broken, it feels incredibly uncomfortable. And that's a problem I have with this film in general is because it's a mix of fantastic elements that are not meant to be taken literally combined with ruminations on the human experience that are meant to absolutely be taken as genuine explorations of actual humanity and at its best that can work really well and i also think that's a lot of how the favorite works but at its worst it's like things that should feel rich feel shallow and things that are designed to just be very silly whimsical elements end up feeling a bit creepy because the film has predisposed you to read it as if it is meant to be meaningful and sophisticated. So every time they have an explicit conversation about politics, it's the most basic-ass nonsense you've ever seen in your life. Which I think is really indicative of the fact that the film is mostly just interested in sex. And also the way it depicts that sex is like not as kind of feminist as it thinks it is. I mean, I'm using the word feminist. I don't know if Yorgos Lanthimos would use the word feminist himself, but... As Steph mentioned earlier, it's this sort of idea that Bella, as a true innocent, is just like seeking pleasure and independence without any knowledge of the kind of hypocritical conservative culture around her or any idea of political ideology or like the way that society functions in any way, which is like an interesting idea. And she immediately and consistently is like showing up the hypocrisy of the culture around her later on in the film. She falls in hard times when she and Mark Ruffalo's character are in Paris and she just kind of wanders into a brothel and starts doing sex work. And it's portrayed in this really light way, which has actually received some criticism, understandably. But the idea is like, oh, if she is this person who has a really high sex drive and she's okay with this, then why would she have a problem with that? And it's like, well, in that case, you have missed a massive element of the Frankenstein narrative here. You have only decided to look at the concept of bodily autonomy through the idea of her being sexually free and fucking whoever she wants for whatever reason, which is a classic man telling a woman's story kind of situation. Not to sound really early 2000s, because that is very kind of like, uh, Miss Andre, but like, why is that the lens that he is so fixated on? Like, 
there's barely any kind of concept of the idea that she might find this violating even outside of culture. And it's like, obviously, toward the end of that sequence, she's kind of talking about how it's like deadening and she doesn't like it anymore. But it seems quite mishandled. And also in terms of the way the sex scenes are filmed, the more I thought about it, the more I was like, what's happening here visually, right? Because first of all, I find it very telling that um, Emma Stone doesn't have any body hair. So she doesn't have like leg hair or underarm Mm. hair. And it's like, well, Yorgos Lanthimos loves to tell grotesque stories. This is meant to be, she's like this sexy monster who doesn't know anything about society. She's also in a kind of fake Victorian era. So Victorian women didn't shave their legs. And the only reason she wouldn't have underarm hair or leg hair in this film is because it caters to the modern idea of beauty. So why have you felt the need to do that rather than having her be a character who is sexually free and has all that body hair going on because that's how that character would work because she doesn't understand why you should remove it, you know? I I realise I'm saying this in like a really circuitous way. But also that counts as well for the way they film the sex scenes because there's a bunch of sex scenes, they're kind of blocked in ways, you know, when she's being bent over stuff or whatever, where it's like, this is a modern kind of pornographic visual language. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with having that visual language in a sex scene in a movie when the purpose of that sex scene is just to be like, look at a hot woman. Yeah. That is like the most popular way of filming a sex scene. But a more truthful way to film that would be a way where she is just like completely given over to pleasure, which is like maybe ugly and not aesthetically pleasing. And they don't really do that. Yeah. I agree with every word of this i hated the brothel sequence and it, and that's really where the film breaks for me you know i already had misgivings there was lots of stuff that i was that was annoying to me but the brothel sequence it feels like the breaking of a promise every new location moves bella forward up until that point you know when she leaves london she gets to experience a very different type of life when she when she moves from lisbon to the ship that's a big step forward as well you know it's not one she enjoys initially but the idea is that by the end of her time in london she is spending a lot of time masturbating and kind of exploring her own sexuality in her own time and then in lisbon she's able to kind of go out and party she's having sex with another person that she's really enjoying but she's also you know she's hedonistic in other ways she's enjoying food she's enjoying parties you know, she is still enjoying sex, but that is now only one aspect of lots of other things she's she's enjoying. On the ship, she discovers philosophy, and she realises that that is a pleasure also. You know, by this point, she's kind of moved on from sex. It's not that she doesn't like it, but, you know, she's not interested in having sex with Mark Ruffalo, and she doesn't feel she needs it. She's not like, ugh, I suppose I'll read this book because I can't have sex. It's like, no, this book is so exciting. There's a point explicitly on the ship where she's offered an opportunity to have sex. She turns it down because she is so gripped by her book. So it feels really strange to then get to Paris where you go, okay, we're in a new location. What new pleasure is she going to explore? And the obvious one, the one you sort of expect is politics. You expect this to be the point where she gets into socialism. And... Plot-wise, that does seem to happen. She seems to be going to these meetings, but we don't see those meetings. We don't hear her talking about it. You know, she makes a friend who's another sex worker at the brothel, who's, you know, a big socialist. But again, it's an incredibly shallow depiction it's of so that. corny because there's this scene where she ha- just has a zinger where she says we are our own means of production and i'm like what a kind of fucking emerald finale line that is just <laughs> it's so silly it's like it's like a netflix teen movie or something because they have this sort of buzzword stuff where you know this other sex worker in the brothel kind of hands her this pamphlet when she first arrives and explains to her about it but it was just really clear what they were more interested in talking about. And I mean, the the same thing for what you say about her discovering philosophy on the boat. And I mean, I understand that conversations about philosophy are hard to film and are probably doubly hard to fit into a movie that is so visually driven, like it doesn't really fit the tone. But um, she has these two characters that are basically her kind of philosophical intro people who are giving her exposition. They're also the only two black characters in the movie. So the guy who introduces her to philosophy and the concept of cynicism on the boat is played by the comedian Jared Carmichael, who I'm sort of vaguely familiar with as a public figure and he's been praised for his stand-up comedy. I was watching this and I was like, who is this guy? Because he's a really bad actor. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, maybe he's just bad in this, but I was like, this is a 
very stilted performance. But he has this scene where he introduces her to the idea of poverty by showing her all these people in Egypt who are just like starving. So you have all of these Egyptian peasants who are being used as props in her narrative and she tries to donate money to them but like clearly the money is going to be stolen by these other guys she gave it to so it's like this weird kind of racist thing where you've got this black guy whose only role is to teach her about philosophy and then he vanishes out of the narrative and then all of these egyptian peasants being used as a narrative tool and then like forgotten about and then she goes to paris and this other sex worker who is played by the other black actor in the film is there to hand her pamphlets, but is basically just like, oh, she's this really nice person who's just there to help her learn about herself and doesn't really have a particularly distinctive personality. And it's like the classic problem in so many films where it's like the actually interesting performances and roles are going to the distasteful white guy characters. Mm. (laughs) Yeah. And we're back to hedonism and sex where it really doesn't belong. It doesn't belong here structurally. You know, we've had our hedonism and sex section. That's not what this is. Here's another example of my issue with when you need real human connection, but instead you get whimsy, which is that she arrives and, and you know, we feel our, the, our stomachs dropping because, oh, she, you know, she's naively wandered into a brothel thinking, oh, this is brilliant. I love having sex and now I get paid for it. Genius. And you go, oh, that's not going to end well for you. But then it, it kind of does. Or what we're shown, because we are not shown the types of men you would expect to see in a brothel. We're shown whimsical men. All of the people she sleeps with are like silly, weird, hilarious. Not threatening. Non-threatening, yeah. Initially visually threatening, but not actually threatening or dangerous or aggressive. And when the dialogue alludes to the idea of them being exploitative or dangerous, it's kind of played off. So there is no... You know, toward the end of it, like I said, she's sort of like, I feel like I'm empty and I'm not feeling anything anymore, which is like the only kind of way that it touches upon the idea that this would be a really unpleasant experience. Otherwise, it's just sort of like jokes about them being smelly or whatever. You were saying like, oh, we're back to hedonism and sex. And she is clearly enjoying a lot of it, or at least like tolerating the guys who are annoying or boring. But this is really the point where it gets into the really conventional zone. Because to start talking about the ending now... This is her discovering, you know, how sex can be bad. And narratively speaking, her response to this is to return home to her father, who she forgives on his deathbed, and then marry the really harmless guy who fell in love with her when she had a baby brain. And it's like, why are you marrying him? And what does this mean about your evolution? You're like, well, I've gone through the period where I understand that sexual freedom is important to me. And now I've decided to marry this guy who doesn't seem like an interesting sexual prospect at all and is kind of a pushover and dull. And it's like, you don't need to be married. There is no reason here that you need to be married to anyone at all. Yeah. I'm going to throw out a hot take and this might Mm, be, uh you might cut all of this. (laughs) This might be a complete waste of time. I think this film is the exact opposite of Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I rewatched Beauty and the Beast in lockdown, and, you know, I'm not the first person to point this out. At the start of that film, Belle is presented as someone who wants adventure. She just wants to get out and explore the world and, you know, live the adventures she's reading in her in her books. And so you think, oh, okay, that's what this film is going to be. Belle is going to have an adventure. And she sort of does, if we conceive of being trapped in a castle with the beast as as fitting the definition of adventure, but it's so clearly not the type of adventure Belle wants. So what actually happens is her dreams of adventure are interrupted by being trapped in a house with a benevolent but grotesque monster. And then at the end, like, she finally gets out, but there's no time left in the film for her to actually experience any further adventure so it just feels like the thing we're told she wants we never get to see this film is the opposite of that bella starts trapped with a benevolent but grotesque monster then gets out and spends most of the movie like exploring the world and then at the end unaccountably just goes back to the house and just lives with like a tiny number of people she has already bonded with like what was the 
point of the adventure like i mean the point of the adventure is you need to learn that it's important to settle down and get married and we have actually forgotten one other subplot which is the reason why this film feels like it never ends which is that after she comes home and she decides that she is going to marry rami youssef's harmless character her original husband shows up so as we mentioned at the beginning she is the body of a dead woman with her own baby implanted into her brain. The dead woman was this wealthy woman named Victoria who killed herself while heavily pregnant. And her husband is this sadistic, aristocratic military general played by Christopher Abbott, who brings her home and locks her up in his mansion. So we're now being introduced to another kind of controlling man as with most of the other influential figures in her life, they're all controlling men who give her different views of society, which is like, okay, so we're not going to have any particularly well-drawn other women characters in her her worldview here. So she eventually ends up shooting him to escape after some, like, unpleasantness in that house. And um, after her father dies, she moves into her childhood home and she is now the, the head of the household. So she does surgery on her terrible ex-husband so that he has the brain of a goat in his body. And then her pal from France moves in. So it's meant to be this sort of like utopian situation where she gets to have intellectual fulfillment studying as a med student, which is historically plausible, not that that matters in a completely fantastical setting, but like in the kind of Victorian-esque scenario, obviously there are women studying medicine at this point. And she also gets to have this non-abusive husband But it is still very much like, why is this the framing of the happily ever after that you want here? Like it's a situation where you've inherited your wealth from your father and you've made a good marriage and you're settling down and you're no longer interested in the hedonism of youth. And it's like, this is all extremely conventional and basically kind of conformist and abandoning the idea that she has a different idea on society. It's like, she now understands how society works and how to fit into it, which is also reflected in her costumes. Because like throughout the film, she has these really bold and wild costumes with like enormous shoulder pads. And like when she goes off on her initial kind of sex holiday with Mark Ruffalo, she starts wearing mini skirts and stuff. And then at the end, it's like, oh, she's wearing a jumper now to hang out and read her books. Yeah. I think in some ways, this film faces a similar challenge to the challenge that faced The Good Place. You know, another acclaimed project that has philosophy at its heart. And the problem is, when you get to the end, you sort of want a definitive statement on philosophy, but um, can't have one. (laughs) There is no answer to philosophy. There's no, and therefore this is what we should do. So after all of this film, you can't really have Bella go, I've worked out how to fix society and I'm going to do it because that would ring extremely hollow. So what do you do? It's not this. This is obviously bad. I don't like this ending. But I don't know what you can do. I think maybe the best ending to this film is exactly the ending it has, but framed explicitly as a terrible thing. (laughs) (laughs) Part of the problem as well is that because it's Emma Stone looking like Emma Stone throughout, how long a period of time does this film cover? I think... You know, a much more satisfying ending would be is if. I mean, I assumed it was like a few weeks. Yeah. I mean, not initially. Like, I assumed it was much longer, like months during her sort of maturation process. But then she's on holiday for a few weeks. Oh, no, but then she's in the brothel for like a few months. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. So, you know, it's maybe a year or two at most, at the very most. During which time she never expresses any concern about pregnancy Or indeed menstruation, which is something I should have mentioned this earlier, but there's a great article in Vulture by the wonderful critic Angelica Jade Bastian, who specifically complains about the lack of uh, menstruation. But she's also kind of talking about how she says, you know, Bella's quest for self-discovery is obtained primarily through interactions, sexual and otherwise, with men. She's a great writer. You should Mm. read that. But yeah, it's like I was watching it like, oh, well, I assume that she's not fertile then. And that's part of the surgical process of removing the baby. But then toward the end, her husband is talking about making sure that she's going to get pregnant. And I'm like, so what's the logistics here? There's like a one line toward the end, just as she gets married to her nice husband, where it's like, oh, you should get checked out for STDs. And I'm like, this woman has 12 different kinds of syphilis. She has been working in a brothel in 19th century Paris. Yeah, Yeah, that's it. And again, it's not knowing what the rules are. Yeah. And when you think about it specifically in... I'm sorry to keep interrupting you. (laughs) But like, when you think about it specifically in the context of 
19th century feminist movements, which is clearly what this original story was talking about, even though I've not read it. It's like the whole kind of 19th century early kind of first wave feminism was all about reproductive rights and having access to birth control. And this film has absolutely no interest in birth control whatsoever. And it's like, that is the foundational concept of feminists in the late 19th century who were talking about free love and being able to be independent within your marriage. It was all about birth control. Yeah. I think there's a strand in this film that I kind of like, but it doesn't go anywhere, that, that you could have gone with. You know, one of the people she meets on the ship is a woman who's significantly older than her. Yeah, who's like Jared Carmichael's pal. Yeah. And Bella asks her, you know, do you still have sex? And she's like, no, I don't. Oh, my God. And, and Bella's horrified. And she asks her, you know, do you at least masturbate? And she's like, oh, you know, every once in a while. And Bella's relieved. Like, oh, thank God. Because the idea of losing access to sexual pleasure horrifies Bella. So I think there is a strand here of like, you know, because obviously like the lesson maybe a less naive Bella ought to take from that is, yeah, as you get older, your interest in sexual activity will lessen. And like, maybe that's okay. You know, that that at the end, you know, like for her to go down and settle down is not because of surrendering to conventional... I mean, like, you know, you'd need to change the ending drastically to try and make this point instead. But I do think you can move into a phase in your life where you're like sexual freedom isn't particularly appealing to me at this age. But I think for that to feel meaningful, you need her to be away a lot longer, like a decade, maybe two decades, for it to feel plausible for, that she's aged into a different phase of life. Yeah. They talk about youth once explicitly in the film. In the brothel, she's talking to the brothel madam, who is played by the marvellous actress Catherine Hunter. She's amazing. She's so good. She's She plays the three witches in Joel Cohen's Tragedy of Macbeth movie. She's fucking great. Really wild kind of physical performer. She is talking to Bella and she's basically just like, well, you know, make the most of it when you're young and beautiful because one day you'll be old like me. Classic kind of exchange, right? Mm. But then the ending is kind of like, well, it's a good thing that Bella's locked down a husband while she's still young and beautiful and like won't seem... And it's like, yeah, she's locked down the guy who was in love with her when she was a toddler brain. Yeah. Ugh. It just feels like the film bit so much off, was unable to chew it, and just really falls off a cliff. Everything from the arrival in Paris is like, well, actually, even the ship, the rot is already setting in on the ship because it cannot handle talking about politics in a sophisticated way, other than like pointing to some poor people and going, that's sad, isn't it? Uh, (laughs) Like, ugh. Yeah, if if only this film had the political sophistication of Barbie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if people want to see a child in the body of an adult discovering the darkness that can face the real adult world through an ill-fated romance with Mark Ruffalo, then, you know, 13 going on 30 is right there. <laughs> <laughs> Stefan's favourite movie. <laughs> Mark has had such a marvellous career. (laughs) Yeah, I think on that note, I think we have covered everything. Yeah. I know we haven't talked about the visual design very much in depth, but um, yeah, I mean, great work from the production designers, James Price and Shona Heath. Great work from the costume designer, Holly Waddington. I approve of their Oscar nominations, less so stuff like Best Picture. I want them to win the technical ones because I want there to be more films that feel they have the freedom to go this wild. Like, I like that it's indulgent. I like the superficial lens, not because it's particularly effective, but because I like that it's unrestrained. And I hope this opens up the possibility that more films are allowed to be this wild and metaphorical with its visual language. I will say, do you know what's wild about this film's screenplay adaptation? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Not a good screenplay. Killers of the Flower Moon wasn't nominated. (laughs) So so this was nominated in in place of Killers of the Flower Moon. Also, the music category, I realise we're divided on this, but um, there's definitely several scores, like the score of The Boy and the Heron by Miyazaki, which should be on there, but um, we don't need to litigate all of the different categories. I am sure we will be doing an Oscars episode closer to the actual Oscars, either me and Morgan or me and Claire. Claire is also a huge awards season person 
many of those films have just been discussed on our best films of 2023 episode which is up now uh invariably our most popular episode of the year so you can check that out on uh, our last episode in the in the overinvested feed at its best this film is great at its worst it's so annoying and falls so far short of its promise and it's sort of weird like when i went on letterboxd most people give this film five stars the second most common rating... Not the people I follow on Letterboxd. <laughs> the second most common rating is one star. Next is four. Next is two. Hardly anyone gives it three stars. I think I would give this three stars. Maybe it's a two. Like, the annoying stuff is really annoying. But it's like, it is such a mix of stuff I hugely approve of. And stuff that is just unforgivably bad. It does feel like it roughly balances out. I think a massive divide in audience is something that Yorgos Lanthimos is comfortable with and indeed would probably relish. The problem with that kind of trait in a director is that it means they don't really listen to criticism a lot of the time. But I feel like his other movies were so fun and exciting that this is not putting me off his work. I just hope he doesn't do another movie that's all about women's sexuality because it it didn't really work out very well this time Um, obviously that's like a really major element of the favorite but i felt like that worked a lot better in part because it was about lesbians and in part because it was leaning a lot more into sort of grotesquerie well yorgos they can't all be winners and in this case by the rest of society this is a winner because of its 11 oscar nominations (laughs) yeah i don't think anyone's Anyone in the making of this film is bothered that we didn't like it, and that's okay. I mean, I, li- I like so many of the people who made this film, and I want them to be happy. Okay, so um, as I said, last week's episode is the best films of 2023. Love recording those episodes. Um, our next episode will be with Claire, and I believe we are going to be talking about the Steven Spielberg West Side Story, which is one of Claire's favourite films of the last few years. I've not watched it yet, but she's seen it like 10 times or something. Maybe more. Who's to say? It's why she's obsessed with Mike Feist. So I'm excited to be introduced to him. And over on the Overinvested Patreon, which is patreon.com forward slash Overinvested Podcast, you can find an episode all about Our Flag Means Death Season 2, co-hosted by Morgan. And if you want to request an episode from there for Stefan and I or Claire and I to do, hop on over, pay for us to discuss a film or a TV show of your choice. Otherwise, as always, you can find me on Letterboxd at Hello Taylor, also on Tumblr, and uh, you can find me on Blue Sky at Gavia. Stefan, do you have any socials you'd like to share or upcoming show dates? Uh, I do, or upcoming show dates, that tour is getting announced any minute now. Follow me on Twitter, I am Stalin, S-T-A-L-U-N. Instagram as Stefan Allen, all one word, you can't spell it, but uh, I dare say my name is in the show notes for you to check. All right, lovely. Thank you for joining me for this, <laughs> you know, this this dubious film once again. I definitely enjoyed talking about it. Uh, listeners, if you liked this episode, please rate and review on uh, Apple Podcasts or your podcast platform of choice, or indeed share it on social media. Thanks again, and we'll see you soon. Bye-bye.